Welcome to Green Street Talks, a podcast that lives at the intersection of capital markets, leadership, and technology in the context of a complex world moving 67,000 miles an hour. I'm Jesse Greif with One Kronos. We've got a great show for you today, part one of my recent discussion with Brian Levine, a former boss of mine, a friend, a mentor, competitor, and all-around great guy. Brian was the co-head of Global Equities Trading at Goldman Sachs, amongst other titles, as we'll get into in the interview. We get deep into trading floor war stories, some iconic transactions, the benefits of batch auctions, Brian's transition to entrepreneurship in healthcare technology as well as pickleball, and a lot of leadership lessons as port destinations along a cruise through Brian's career. Excited to hop on board, but before that, nothing in this episode constitutes investment advice, an offer, recommendation, or solicitation by OneKronos or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Watch out for part two of my discussion with Brian hitting the tape in roughly two weeks. Really looking forward to this one, so let's get right into it. Okay, here we go. I'm here today with Brian Levine. Brian is currently a strategic advisor for Major League Pickleball, the world's top professional pickleball league, where he previously served for eight months as interim CEO. He's also the co-founder of The Public Health Company, a company that's developing the first global biosecurity platform to provide enterprises a SaaS-enabled service for the management of bio-related risks. Prior to Public Health Company, Brian spent 25 years at Goldman Sachs, ascending through program and Delta One trading, including 13 years as a partner. He most recently served as co-head of global equities trading and execution services. Earlier in his career, Brian was responsible for trading the tech sector during the dot-com era and open trading for GS-led IPOs such as Yahoo, eBay, Tesla, and many others. He was pivotal in automating the stock trading business, first in the US and then in Europe, and his responsibilities included the pricing and risk management of Goldman's largest equities block trades throughout the past decade. He served on both the GS firm-wide risk and technology risk committees, securities division executive committee, and was co-chair of the Senior Diversity Council. Brian currently serves on the board of IEX Exchange and the University of Florida Athletic Association. Brian is a minority investor in the NHL's Vegas Golden Knights hockey team, Siri Oz Venezia FC, and is an advisor to Three Ice Pro Hockey League, Archer Aviation, Lost Tribe Esports, and City Pickle. Brian is an avid pickleball player and is currently ranked among the top 10 senior pro single players in the world. Brian earned a BSBA from the University of Florida in 1992 and an MBA in finance from Emory in 1994. Okay, so a lot of stuff to cover here, Brian. You joined Goldman in 1994 out of business school. These were the pre-GSIPO days and also the pre-dot-com days. Talk us through what your role was and was like at the time, and also if you could give some context to listeners of what trading was like at the time. Sure, Jesse. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today uh, and share some of uh, these stories and hopefully learnings uh, from my career. Um, 
So as you said, I joined Goldman Sachs in 1994 straight out of business school. It was the first real job uh, I'd ever had. And uh, I got into trading somewhat accidentally through business school. Mostly I've always been interested in numbers and solving puzzles. And uh, I had written a stats paper in business school in regards to a, a baseball uh, baseball statistic, which was called total value, which was very similar to what you would consider uh, value above replacement today. Um, and someone introduced me to Wall Street, and um, I, I sent uh, close to 100 resumes out there. got very lucky that uh, I was hired by Goldman. And I was fascinated by trading. And when I got to the trading floor uh, in 94, um, you know, it was what you would call very old school. You know, there's a lot of screaming, a lot of testosterone on the trading floor, um, a lot of energy. And, um, you know, it was a lot of fun. It reminded me a lot of, of a lot of the sports related things I'd done, a lot of uh, athletic types uh, on the floor. Um, but what always struck me even back then was the lack of efficiencies, right? Like there, there were so many things that uh, could be done more efficiently. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that I came across early on was, you know, I, was, I, was, I, I remember vividly sitting, uh, sitting on the desk in, in one of these stools that you would have when you were in trading, in training. And, uh, you know, there were situations where people are screaming all day long. You know, everyone's holding phones to their ear and, you know, other broker dealers are calling, trying to buy stocks. And, and each trader is responsible for a sector and a certain amount of stocks. And uh, one, of the, one of the most significant situations in my early career was a salesperson stood up and asked uh, for our Microsoft trader, screamed out, where would you buy 2 million shares of Microsoft? And the whole room kind of got quiet and the trader stood up and thought for a few seconds and stared at his screen and went through some sort of process in his head and basically just shouted out, I'll buy him down three-eighths, you know, which was three-eighths of right. the point. And, you know, salesperson talks to the client, shouts out, sold, everyone's screaming, everyone jumps on the phones, there's, scre- there's chaos going on and I couldn't follow what was going on and basically everyone was, you know, the trader was getting all the traders to, to sell the stock and was strategically figuring out how to sell it. And I just, you know, took my notes and at the end of the day, I, I asked the trader, I said, I said, how did you come up with that price? That seems like the most important thing in the world was how you came up with that three-eighths price. And I figured there was some sort of really complicated math that went along with this. And he goes, you know, I don't know, kid, you know, I looked at the stock, I've been trading it, I knew where the buyers were and the sellers and the stock, how much volume was trading and what the volatility was. And it was, you know, it was quite volatile then. And and I said, um, I said, are there any tools you use, you know, to help you doing that? He goes, nah, he goes, I guess I'm just watching the tape. And, you know, on a trading desk, you've got, you know, there's a dozen different screens and blinking lights and colors and sounds and all these things to alert you of things. Um, but he couldn't really synthesize exactly what he's looking for. So in those days, you know, that was the very early days of Excel. And when I was in business school, it had just come out, Microsoft Excel. So I figured I was going to, you know, sort of break some ground and create an Excel spreadsheet to help him with a a block pricer. And so I spent a couple of months putting something together that could help traders in a situation where they could just simply type in a symbol and a quantity of stock. And it would look at really three simple variables. It was just average daily volume and a couple of volatility measures, like mm-hmm. five, you know, maybe one day vol and 30 day vol. And it would spit out a rough price, a price to give them a guideline. And I thought that this was like, I was like, you know, inventing fire. And I was able to present it to all the traders. And, and uh, I remember presenting it to them thinking like, this is gonna be great. And it was pretty much met with laughter. 
And they, you know, one of the guy traders stood up. He goes, he goes, let me get a kid. He goes, you've been out of school for a few months and you figured out exactly what we need to do, like how we could be replaced by the spreadsheet. And they're all laughing. And you know, it, it, the seminal moment for me was the next morning uh, when traders were, were uh, ordering their lunch for the next day, and one of the traders shouted out to another trader. He goes, he goes, hey Jimmy, he goes, what are you ordering for lunch today? And he goes, I don't know. Hey Levine, what does your spreadsheet say I should eat for lunch today? <laughs> and the whole floor was hysterical, and, and I was thinking like, okay, this is probably my last month uh, at Goldman Sachs. And uh, you know, it was a little early, um, but you know, eventually those were the kind of things that were implemented. But you know, in those days, uh, you know, it was really more just about feel, and you know, and people yeah. didn't really have the tools. And um, but it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. You know, I really enjoyed those days. Um, you know, when we started. So makes sense. And and kind of a good segue to the next question, which is, what do you credit as being your personal edge early on? And you know, what made someone great in that seat? So, you know, so I think for trading, you know, it's really a very specific skill set that at a high level is really just about forecasting, right? Which which is applicable to a lot of different things, I think, in life and, and a lot of different businesses. But for trading, it's literally just forecasting. You have hundreds, if not thousands of potential variables that can go into, you know, simplistically, why is a stock going up or down in the future? Um, and you have to use some pattern recognition, you know, you've done in the past, like, what do you weight more? And you're also balancing it with the with the sentiment factor, meaning, okay, everyone knows this is that, you know, NVIDIA is a great company and that AI is going to use their chips and that makes a lot of sense, but how much of it is kind of baked into the price, right? Mm -hmm. you're, gonna, you're gonna have to balance that. Um, but, you know, I, I would joke with people all the time that like, you know, playing fantasy football isn't dramatically different than trading, right? Because you're, 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 you kind of have similar information as everybody else. And you're simply prognosticating is is some is a, a stock or a player going to do as well as the market thinks that they're going to. And uh, that is, I think, a unique skill and one that you have to refine, right? Like you have to be, you know, people are skewed by all sorts of cognitive biases, right? Like you could have had situations where, you know, you got burnt in a certain stock on the short side a couple of times and therefore you, you, you'll be less attuned to, to right. getting, you, you're not going to want to get shorted because you've been skewed by that. Like you get imprinted, you know, like a duck. And um, it's really important to be as agnostic as possible, but you have to learn. You know, there are times when you're wrong and figure out why you're wrong um, and be, you know, truly hyper-rational about what goes into the decisions, about, how, you know, how you decide, you know, what your views are and just being truly honest with yourself. And that's that's a hard thing for people to do because you tend to get biased yeah. uh, very easily. And most of the time, people don't realize when they are. Makes sense. A lot of folks, a lot of uh, great leaders, in fact, um, credit part of their journey to uh, mentorship along the way. Um, did you have any mentor or rabbi like at the firm or elsewhere that, that helped you during these earlier years? How did that kind of go and can you talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was very lucky that um, I really sat with the, the way it usually works when you start on a trading desk and it, it's still somewhat similar that you'll sit with a senior trader and you'll assist them. And as you get better, you start getting more and more responsibility. But obviously, you know, they act, of course, as mentors and you learn you know everything there is about the business from them, and I was fortunate enough to that the two traders I sat with uh, were tremendous. Um, the first was uh, a man named uh, Castell Ortiz, um, who, you know, what I'd say he taught me the most was that he sort of instilled a sense of discipline, 
um, and process. You know, and I really learned, you know, what I'd call like like process over outcome. That whole mindset definitely came from him. Um, you know, as I was saying before, not to get skewed by what happened. Don't be results oriented. Stick with your process. You know, and and uh, he taught that discipline about always doing the same thing over and over again. And um, you know, and that's something that I parlayed. You know, I started in shares trading my first ten years, and I moved to program trading, which is systematic trading. The, the difference really between program trading and single stock trading is that in program trading, you're really trading thousands of stocks at once. Right. Right. You can't do that manually. Right. You got to create processes that help you do that in a systematic formula. Um, so you know, Costello was really helpful with with me there. I spent my first year or so with him, and then I was fortunate enough, uh, fortunate enough uh, to to assist. A man by the name of Joe Delarosa, who was the head of the desk, um, he was the partner that ran uh, the shares desk, and you know Joe not only was an incredible trader, um, you know most people that become the heads of the desk are great traders, um, but he also, you know, two things. One was not always a great trader, but but he instilled this sense of integrity that I think came from you know that culture, particularly back then. You know when when that was when we were still a private company, right and. Not to say that things have dramatically changed, but um, when you're a private company uh, and you're, you're you're trading money for partners, you know it's their money, right? Like it's it's right. really their neck on the line, and it's not just the money. You know, Goldman always had this phrase about being long-term greedy, and that comes from the fact that for our first 130 years we were a private company, and so you're not necessarily making a decision that just in isolation, what's going to make me the most money today, you're thinking 5, 10, 20 years out, doing the right thing for your clients. They keep coming back. And that's something that was instilled from the top down. And with Joe, I, the amount of times where he would do things where, you know, it would cost us, you know, I remember $100,000 just doing something because they didn't even ask. He just thought it was the right thing to do. Um, was something that was 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 quite powerful, and you know I also was very lucky. You know, sitting with Joe, um, you know, this is the mid to late '90s. That was the dot com, you know, era, and Goldman led, you know, the the, the trading of, of of IPOs back then, and so the head of the desk would trade them, and so I would do that with him. And as I got better at that, I would start trading them. Right, and so that was just. You know, a lot of things in life is, is a function of opportunity. You know, the fact that I happened to be with him and happened to have exposure to those types of stocks in that type of situation, uh, you know, is a very fortunate thing that, that, you know, you're just grateful that you're in that situation. But but Costell and Joe, you know, taught me a tremendous amount that uh, helped me as a trader throughout the years. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, a lot of people talk about or a lot of a lot of interviewers ask about best trades. Uh, I'm going to flip the switch a little bit, and uh, can you tell us about one or two examples of your worst trade or trades, and what you learned from that experience? Yeah, no, it's, it, that, that's always that's better than the best trades, right? Because the best <laughs> trades to me just feel like people are just bragging about right. how much money they made in something. Right. The worst trades are ones that teach you, right? Because uh, you know, it's um, I always find that humility is is an, is an important teacher. Um, you know, and, and how you respond to adversity is one of the most important tells. And, and, and throughout the years, as I had junior people and, you know, question of like, should we promote, you know, him or her, a lot of it had to do with, you know, what have they had that's been difficult and how have they responded to it, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're at Goldman Sachs and you've got a tremendous advantage. And a lot of people that have gotten to those seats have had, you know, what's could be considered a frictionless career, right? So how do you respond when you have something difficult? 
And you know, difficult trades are a great test of that and how, how people respond. Do they take accountability? What do they do? Um, you know, how do they communicate? Um, what did they learn from it? How do they improve going forward, right? Or they, do they make the same mistakes over and over again? Um, I'd say for me, the most significant one was in 2006. Um, I had recently, I guess I'll give a, a touch of backstory because it, 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 it adds to the drama of the situation. Um, I had moved in early 2005 from shares trading to program trading. And um, I knew nothing about program trading. They, it was, uh, I, was, I was a little disappointed. I, I hadn't been promoted to partner in 2004. Partner gets promoted every two years at Goldman Sachs. And I was still fairly young. I was 33 at the time. So I shouldn't have been that disappointed, but I would had high expectations. And one of the criticisms that my bosses had for me was, hey, listen, you've just traded shares, you just traded you know, stocks, and you, know, you make a lot of money doing that, that's great, we'll pay you for that, but if you wanna be a leader at Goldman Sachs, you've gotta show that you can do other things, and right. you can manage people, and you, could, you, know, you can be broader than just be a, you know, a great you know, stock jockey. And so I didn't know what that, I was like, well, you know, when do those things happen? They're like, well, we'll find out. And there was an opportunity where um, they wanted someone new in a program trading seat and they asked me to do it. And it didn't seem like it made the most sense in the world because I was kind of queued up to be potentially head of the shares trading desk shortly. I'd been there for 10 years and I knew nothing about program trading and it was a much smaller business. Um, so I was reticent, but I said to my bosses, I said, if you guys think it's the right thing to do, I will go ahead and do it. And I'd been there for, and for program trading, you know, there's a lot, as I said before, you're trading lots of stuff, you're trading baskets of stocks. Um, so it's, it's more systematic. And, you know, the biggest transactions in a program trading desk are what's called index rebalances. So when the S&P 500, a stock, you know, comes out of the S&P 500, it could be because of a merger or numerous other reasons, one goes in. And it's a big transaction because there's a lot of money that's tracking the S&P 500. So if a company goes in, a lot of money is going to now have to go into that, that one stock. And that happens on a certain date, it gets announced. Um, and there's a lot of trading that goes on around that. There's speculation about what are companies that'll go in, that'll go out. And, and not only is it just additions and deletions, but all these um, you know, indexes rebalance periodically. So it's a large business and sort of, you know, there's a lot of flows, you know, billions of dollars going in and out of, of stocks. And so the first large trade I had, typically the largest trade of the year was what's called the Russell rebalance trade. The Russell would have one major rebalance every year, usually was the last Friday in June. And so in June of 2006, it was really the first year that I was responsible for our Russell rebalance trade. And, you know, there was, the short version of it was, um, we basically lost $60 million in the last 10 minutes of trading. And it was incredibly difficult. And um, it was difficult for our team. It was a tremendous amount of money for our department. And uh, it was not just a lot of money, but from a morale perspective, you know, I'm the new guy in the desk. We had a lot of, of talented people. And, you know, it wasn't just an issue of, of the money and what's gonna, that gonna mean for bonuses at the end of the year. There were a lot of people that, that were considering leaving now because, you know, they were getting poached because they were talented. And, right. And so for me, it was, it was two things. One, it was, let's figure out what we got wrong and figure it out. And the other one was like, how do we retain these people? And um, there were two very separate things. Um, on figuring it out was we spent months determining uh, what we got wrong 
and we it, you know losing that kind of money forces you to spend hundreds of hours on something that you normally wouldn't and what we really determined was that there was a tremendous amount of, of what you'd call kind of shadow short interest in the marketplace that wasn't easily identifiable that we started to identify and we realized and this was part of it's what you'd call a wrong way trade so right way means um, stock ABC is going to the Russell. We think that there'll be a million shares to buy. Wrong way means it doesn't go up into the rebalance, it goes down, right? And it could happen because people pre-traded it too much and right. then they tried to sell it into the rebalance and that was more than the demand, then the stock went down. Um, but what we found was that there was a lot of short interest in these stocks. And so because a stock was going into the Russell, didn't just mean that people who were buying, tracking the Russell rebalance. There are a lot of people who were shorting the Russell against their single stock portfolios. And as we discovered that, we realized that going into the Russell didn't necessarily mean you were going up, it meant you're going down. And as we dug into that um, pretty significantly, we got a lot of conviction that that was the case. The second one was keeping the people, and we did keep the people. And uh, you know, some of those folks, uh, actually several of them that were on our our team that were very junior at the time, many of them ended up being partners that had, you know, very successful careers in Goldman over the next, you know, 15 years after that as well. So, um, you know, for me, I take a lot of pride in, in, in that as well, in terms of in, rather than just getting a, getting a profitable or non-profitable trade and turning it profitable. Um, but back to back to the, the, the rebalance trade, you know, it, came, it happened again the next year, 2007. Actually, I'll take a step back to 2006, and this was an interesting culture thing with Goldman Sachs. Was I kind of had written off that I'm going to make partner in 2006? You know, like I said, I thought I was going to make in 2004. Uh, they moved me to this new business, and in my mind, like I was this failure, right? I, I moved to this other department. We had right. this terrible trade. Um, partner selection was a few months later, towards the end of 2006, and my assumption was I wasn't going to make it. And I was very pleasantly surprised when I was promoted, and I do remember. Right after I made it, I remember talking to my boss, and I'll leave his name out of it. But he basically, I said, I was frankly, I was surprised that I got promoted. And, you know, because you know I hadn't lost a lot of money, and, and he said, you know, you, once you did that, you know, how you handled your team and the right. work that you did right. really showed us that that you know that we think that you could be a future leader. But the real test came in 2007 when we had the trade again, right? <clears throat> and we actually set it up as a wrong way trade as opposed to a right way, meaning instead of buying all these stocks that were going right. in, we actually got short. And there was so much pressure around that because not the senior senior people were not convinced. This was very, this was very um, contrarian, right? Like this concept. So it's like pulling your goalie. Yeah, like it, it, it's so it, it was so counterintuitive to right. what people thought, but we were so convicted because we spent so much time on this. And long story short, um, we made that money and a, and a lot more, and it worked again in two thousand eight. And then to that, what was interesting was, you know, you had the financial crisis at the end of 2008. What that ended up, you know, the market then, you know, crashed 2008, 2009. What that did was suck a lot of the liquidity out of the system. And when we ran our numbers for the 2009 trade, we found this wasn't a wrong way trade anymore. This actually is very right way. And by this point, there weren't anyone really even pre-trading the rust rebalance trades anymore because they've been getting burned now for three years. They right. were still putting on right way trades because, you know, for them, this was, you know, this was supposed to go up and hadn't been for years, but in 2009 we reversed, went right way, and that was by far our best trade ever. And so, you know, it's a great to me. It's like such a great story of, 
you know, you have this tremendous failure and, you know, you respond one way and, um, you know, if you, you know, it's not just what I did, but, but the team staying together and our bosses still having conviction in us. I mean, I, I don't think there's another firm on Wall Street that would have tolerated a $60 million loss, you know, helped keep people to stay and then get behind us a year later on a wrong way trade. And the fact that it was as successful as it was is a testament to all those things. Um, but it really forced us to dig into this and make sure we were truly convicted that this was the right thing. And it's very rare that something like that happens. So, so to me, that, you know, that, that was a tremendous, um, you know, a failure turned success. And there aren't a lot of examples like that, but that was a... I appreciate um, you sharing. It's, al it's also a really neat example. I mean, from your own standpoint, the adversity you were presented with gave you the opportunity to flex into your emerging leadership skills, which sounds like ultimately got you promoted. Um, so from that standpoint, also a very cool thing. I remember um, at some point, Lloyd had interviewed Doris Kearns Goodwin, the biographer, and uh, he asked her a really good question about, it was either about Lincoln or FDR, where would you say that these presidents would be on the pedestal that they are if they weren't presented with these types of adversity, right? A civil war um, or a world war. And her answer was no. She didn't even have to think about it, right. um, which I think is an interesting parallel. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you almost need to create adversity just to, to test, you know, what people are made of. Right. Right. And, and if you don't have that, um, you'll never know. And yeah. So, uh, you know, that was it was at the time a fairly an extremely difficult experience that that worked out in the end. Yeah. Um, Okay, how about, that was definitely an awesome example. How about a, um, a historic trade you could walk us through? What comes to mind for me, certainly, is your involvement in the Knight Capital Unwind Basket. You also had some Red Hot IPOs that you had worked on and we talked about in the intro. Um, can you talk us through either of those or anything else that comes to mind? Uh, sure, so you know, with Knight Capital, um, if people aren't familiar with Knight Capital, um, was a broker dealer that had an algorithmic error um, in the middle of the trading day. Uh, one day, I believe it was 2012, um, and everyone in the marketplace could tell something had gone terribly wrong during the day because there were dozens of stocks that started acting incredibly erratically one way or the other. And so what we, not everyone knew exactly at the time was that they had a error in their system and they bought ultimately billions of dollars worth of stocks that they didn't mean to do. And they weren't capitalized enough to handle what were the errors. So once the once the day, the trading day ended, they had over five billion dollars worth of these unwanted positions and, you know, not good positions, right? They had to get out of them right away. And so that night, um, I think they had called a couple of different brokers about trying to sell that basket of stocks, which is essentially a program trade. Uh, at this time, I was living in London. I was running uh, the European trading desk. And, um, you know, I remember it was very late night for me. I actually had to go to sleep in the middle of the call because it was obviously five hours later in London. And we were negotiating uh, how to buy the block. Ultimately, uh, we ended up buying it. And we had the risk of $5 billion of all these stocks. And, uh, you know, it had been a few years since I'd been, you know, day to day in program trading. But I remember waking up in the morning, you know, at five in the morning, London time. We had just won it, 
and starting at 9.30 in the morning in US time, we were gonna suddenly have this risk. And I, and I just spent you know, the next 10 hours, right? Because that was you know, midnight US time. Uh, just devising a strategy, going through every single stock, how much it moved, you know, all these sort of residual and figure out, you know, this stock we want to be aggressive covering, this one we don't want to touch at all, this position, you know, we're short Pepsi, but we're long Coke, that's okay. Uh, those sorts of things. And um, it was a, a fascinating real life uh, experiment of, uh, you know, what you do in those sorts of situations, because it was crazy. We, we The price that we wanted at, and this is this was ultimately you know, in the Wall Street Journal, so I could say it, we were paid almost $200 million of premium to take on that risk. And, but, you know, you could easily lose that and then some, depending on what happens right. over the next few days, weeks, months. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a really interesting situation where, you know, you're, you're figuring out where you want to be aggressive, where you want to be passive, what hedges itself, what other hedges we would put on, you know, whether it was market hedges, you know, uh, do you put on, you know, crash puts and, um, you know, which, which companies have earnings, right? Like, like we don't want to take, you, you don't want to hold a, you know, $300 million position in a stock you know nothing about and if they have earnings the next day, right? So figuring out all that stuff in a, in a real fast time period was, uh, was one of the more fascinating experiences that I've been through. Very nice. And, um, oh, in terms of, yeah, you mentioned something about um, large ads. So there was, well, I think one of the more, um, Interesting, you know, in the internet days back in 99, I remember Yahoo got added to the S&P, and this is back when I was still in shares trading, but I was trading the internet stocks, as I had said before. And when Yahoo got added to the S&P 500, back in those days, institutions weren't trading internet stocks. It was purely a retail phenomenon. Oh, interesting. And so there was no liquidity, like meaning like if an institution came in and said, hey, I want to buy 50,000 shares of Yahoo back then, it was trading at $200 a share. It'd be like, oh my God, like that's 210, 220. Like it's, you know, because you start buying it up $5, $10, it actually would bring out more demand than supply because you, 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 you'd, you'd spark a short squeeze, right? And there was no fundamental tether. None of these companies were making money. 90% um, of them went out of business within a year or two when the, when the dot com bubble burst. Um, so it was fascinating when we, we determined that when Yahoo was going to get added to the SP 500. It was going to be millions of shares of demand, and it was going to go in in about a week. So the day they announced it, and this is sometime in December of '99. I remember it was right before. It was, it was right before year 2K. Um, and you know, the stock at the time was at 228 when it was first announced. And I remember going through in my head that when this gets added, by the time this gets added in a week, this could double. Like it, it didn't seem to make much sense. I mean, usually when stocks get added to the S and P, it goes up by a few percentage points. Right, right. Um, but there was no other side to this. Every short was going to get squeezed from here till next week when it actually went in. And so, so opened at two twenty. It was at two twenty eight, and it went up two thirty, two two forty, two sixty, two eighty over the next few days. And I remember I just had a long position, and it wasn't even that much of a long position. It was thirty thousand shares or something like that. Um, I refused to sell it until it went into the S&P, and it went, I think it went in a week later at 348. Wow. It went up $120. And um, that was like the first, it was, it was a great test of like having conviction. And in, in trading, especially in, in flow trading, traders tend to kind of want to buy low, sell high. Hmm. So it's very hard, you know, if you have a good long position, the stock goes up a few bucks, that's, probably about as much as you're going to make on the trading side. 
Um, but that was one where I was so convicted to like, there, there is no other side to this trade that I just held on to that long throughout that. And it was a great learning experience for me about how powerful liquidity could be. And that served me well as you went to program trading, which is really all just about liquidity and sentiment. Right, right. Um, good stories. Um, okay, so you were very much the historian on the Goldman Sachs trading floor. Tons of examples of that that, that come to mind. Um, many books have been written about the firm by both alumni and historians. I recall you interviewing and often citing the firm's most tenured employee, Al Feld, may he rest in peace, who was employed at the firm for over 80 years, which is more than half the firm's history. I also recall you interviewing and escorting Warren Buffett around the trading floor at the height of the financial crisis, when Buffett had agreed to capitalize us after GS had become a bank holding company. My understanding is Buffett's relationship with the firm dated back to the 1940s, starting with Sidney Weinberg. If you had to identify one trait about the firm's culture that really made it stand out, what would you say that is? And what did management do right to maintain that cultural element throughout the decades? I mean, first I want to say, you, you just mentioned the, the, the Warren Buffett, Sidney Weinberg story, and I actually remember uh, when he did when he did come to the, the floor and, and spoke to us uh, in 2009, he actually said that he visited Goldman Sachs for the first time when he was 10 years old. Wow. His, his dad, for his 10th birthday, his dad, he wanted to go to the New York Stock Exchange, which isn't too surprising that Warren Buffett wanted right. that for his 10th birthday. <laughs> and somehow ended up in a room with Sidney Weinberg, who was the CEO of Goldman Sachs. And he was CEO of Goldman probably for about 40 years. Um, and... Warren, remember, I remember he was telling the story, and Sidney Weinberg actually asked him uh, to give him his favorite stock selection. And Warren, and Warren Buffett, when he recalled the story, he goes, he goes, I honestly don't remember what I said. He goes, it's sort of like when you kiss a girl for the first time, you, the, your world just goes blank. Right. Because <laughs> I, I had Sidney Weinberg asking me what, what stock I wanted. And I, I remember thinking in my head, I'm like, Warren Buffett's 10 years old. I'm like, right. like it's not surprising he became Warren Buffett, as we know him. Um, but... Uh, Yes, that was that was a tremendous experience. I mean, for those that that, that don't recall, um, you know, one of the things that really set the bottom in the financial crisis uh, in late two thousand eight, early two thousand nine was you know there was a massive bank run, and there was this sort of domino effect that everyone was afraid of that all the the banks were going to get infected that because there was you know there was so much collateral between banks mm. that if, if two, three, four go out of business, then no one's going to be able to, 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 to survive. And what you really needed in, in the markets was the sentiment, right? You needed someone to, to just say, like, this is too much, right? And then, you know, things start, you know, uh, momentum starts building in the positive way. And, and, and Buffett really was that person. Buffett came in, you know, Goldman stock, you know, we had, we'd been in the hundreds, you know, 300 down to 50, I think was probably the low. Um, and I remember Morgan Stanley was low single digits. I mean, there were, there were a lot of companies that were, you know, there were rumors every morning of what the next one was going to be. And this one day, Warren Buffett came in and, and said, this is too much. I'm investing $10 billion in Goldman Sachs. And that was more or less the low, not just, not just for Goldman, but really for, for, for the run of the financial stocks and thus, thus the, the stock market. And so, you know, that was a pretty bold thing for him to do. And a few months after he did that, uh, one day on the trading floor, uh, 
I remember, you know, the trading floor has close to a thousand people on it and you, you can't see to the other end of it. There was this massive applause that erupted from one end of the, the far end of the floor from where we're on. And we were trying to figure out what was going on, but you can't see because people were started standing up. And, and as, you know, more people started standing up as it got closer to us, we couldn't tell, you know, we'd never seen anything like this before. And suddenly coming down our aisle was Warren Buffett with Lloyd Blankfein, who was, who was our CEO at the time. And uh, as fate had it, they stopped right next to me and my boss were sitting at the end, Paul Russo. And they stopped right then and there was still applause that went on for many, many minutes and it was echoing throughout the room because it, it was very emotional, you know, because this was, this was the guy that, um, who in many ways, you know, not just saved us, but really possibly, you know, we, we, we don't know what we don't know, um, save the market. And, you know, here he was for the first time, not to mention that he's, you know, a, a legend as it is. And um, I vividly remember as soon as the applause stopped and there was that moment of silence, um, uh, my boss, Paul Russo, uh, turned to Warren and said, so Warren, what do you think of the ovation the floor just gave to Lloyd? <laughs> and it was so funny like they just laughed it was it was just it was an incredible moment and um yeah it was it was you know that to me you know summed up the culture because i think one of the reasons why warren did that was the culture like he you know when he spoke to he spoke to the the, the, the group of partners uh, shortly after that and told his his long history um with goldman sachs that he's had for many years and the respect he's always had for the firm and what it meant to him and so, you know, you ask a question about the culture, like they're all related. You know, that's that's the long term greedy mantra that's always existed. I think at right. Goldman Sachs is, you know, you don't know, you know, the Joe Delarosa example I gave, like you don't know. Maybe that decision that costs you one hundred thousand dollars today maybe saves your life at some point in the future. And it means, you know, it, it, it's part of why clients want to come back to you because they know that you're going to do the right thing in the long run, you know, and so. It is all related, and so that that to me was probably the most powerful, um, you know, example that I could think of. Um, but you know, we, we went public in, in 1999, and we still have you know technically partners, um, but it's still public, right? And so um, you know, it's no longer partners are, are risking their own capital, so it's not quite the same. Um, but I do think that you know. The standards are still extremely high, and I think the quality of people is still extremely high, and you know, the culture is extraordinarily important to that. That's a wrap for this episode of Green Street Talks. Thank you so much to our guest, Brian Levine. Keep an eye out for part two of my discussion with Brian being released in two weeks' time. And a special thanks to Maggie Stutz of One Kronos, who helped produce and edit this episode, and to my colleague Bill Turtle for the original music composition. That's all we got for today. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.